This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Okay, so now it's my pleasure to introduce our speakers for today. We're going to have something a little different. This is going to be a debate on proportional representation. So it's my pleasure to introduce our two speakers for today. Um, arguing for yes to PR, uh, yes for PRBC is David Mosscrop, the gentleman right here. Uh, David is a political theorist and postdoctoral fellow in the Scholarly Communications Lab at Simon Fraser University. He studies democratic deliberation, citizenship, and how we communicate with one another and make political decisions. He writes for McLean's Magazine and a few other outlets and provides regular political commentary for television, radio, and print. He is cr- currently working on a book about why we make bad political decisions and how we can make better ones. It's going to come out in the fall of 2019. Excellent. Looking forward to it. So that's David. Now our other speaker is um, arguing for the no to PRBC is Bill Tieleman. Bill is a political panelist regularly on CBC Radio and TV in BC and with other media. Bill has been communications director in the BC Premier's office and at the BC Federation of Labor. Bill owns West Star Communications, a consulting firm providing strategy and communication services for labor, business, nonprofits, and government. Please welcome Bill and David. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I should start by saying that I'm going to, I've done a few of these and I'll be doing a few more. But I'm leaving in August. I'm moving to Ontario. I'm going to be disenfranchised from the final vote, uh, which means that I need you more than ever to to represent me posthumously, in a sense, as I move to Ottawa to try to carry the message across the country to Ontario. Uh, I want to start by talking about three very general reasons why I like proportional representation. And the questions we can get into the nitty-gritty and into the case studies and into the, the specifics, but I want to talk about three of the top-line things that I think are good about proportional representation. And the first one is it matches or reflects a conception of fairness, which I think is, is both intuitively appealing to people but also uh, good for politics in the province. And that's this idea that if you get 30% of the vote, you should get about 30% of the, of the seats. That reflects a very basic understanding of fairness as you get what you deserve, you don't get any more, you don't get any less. Practically speaking, that means that you can't, as a political party, leverage, say, 39% of the vote to win a majority government, or sometimes less. You know, 39% of the vote gets you 55 or 60% of the seats which is not just, I think, a violation of an important conception of fairness, but also, politically speaking, gets you into trouble when a party says, well, we know what that 39% of the vote looks like. And it doesn't look like you, it doesn't look like you, it doesn't look like you, it looks like these folks over here, and so we're going to focus on these folks over here, because we can leverage 39% of the vote for 100% of the power, so we're going to campaign to that 39%. So immediately, it, it narrows the range of interests that a political party has to focus on in order to win power, which is why political parties exist 
exists for the most part. So I consider PR fair, which I quite like and think is appropriate for politics in BC and, and pretty much everywhere. The second is I think it's a more rational way to make a political decision. And here's what I mean. So, so why, do, why do we have elections? Well, systemically we have elections because you've got to return a government. Someone has to run the show, and the way you do that is, is through an election. So, uh, fine. But what do you as a voter do when you go to the ballot box? There's a lot of different reasons to show up. But most people want to elect someone that they like. They want to elect someone they think is going to be representative of their interests and who's going to be responsive to what they want. Well, under first past the post, what often happens is you, you get a government. You get a government every time. But you don't always get a representative that you like or think represents you or is responsive to you. In fact, most of the time you don't, right? I mean, strictly speaking, if you strongly prefer uh, your candidate, the probability of that candidate getting elected in general is, is quite low because usually candidates are elected with somewhere between 39 to 50% of the vote, give or take. Some get 50% or more, but most are in the sort of like 39 to 49% range. So. PR is more rational because it not only returns a government like first past the post does, which is good, but it also makes it more likely that you as a voter are going to get a representative that you identify with and who will represent you and who will be responsive to you. So under PR, what you'd get is government members and opposition members across the province in every district instead of having a concentration of, of folks. So on the island, you don't have any liberals. In the interior, you don't have any new Democrats, or you have very few. In the north, you have very few. And you only have a few Greens on the island. But there are supporters of every political party in every district. Why shouldn't they have someone locally who can represent them and who can reflect their views? So PR allows that to happen. It's more rational. Finally, it's more inclusive. So right now, there are three parties in the legislature. Uh, that's you know, slightly atypical um, in some cases. You know, we're not used to having three Greens. Until recently, we only had one. Uh, and yet, the Greens enjoy pretty robust support across the province. Under PR, you'd have more parties. We don't know for sure how many more parties you would have. I would estimate you'd end up with one or two, maybe three more parties who get elected to the legislature. Uh, it's possible parties would then form groups after the election to govern together. But what happens under PR is that all of a sudden, because parties, there are more of them who might win, you get more of them in the legislature, which means that you have a broader range of interests uh, reflected in elected officials in the legislature. So you get a little bit more diversity. But that diversity reflects an inclusiveness. Because for every different party, that's a different group of voters who has someone in Victoria advocating for what they like. I mean, ask yourself how many times you've gone to the ballot box and held your nose and voted for, well, I don't love this party, but I certainly don't like this other party. And I want this one to beat that one, not because I like them, because, well, I just don't want this other bozo to win. And so you vote strategically. Well, now all of a sudden you're going to have a much broader range. And so, the, so great. So we, we return all these parties, five or six parties to the legislature. Well, then what? Well, someone's got to govern. So then those parties have to get together, make bargains, make deals, perhaps enter into coalition, and compromise with one another 
which, and what that does is it produces a legislative agenda that is also more diverse and also more inclusive because now you can't leverage 39% of the vote to do whatever you want anymore. Now you've got to bargain with people. Now you've got a diverse group of people that you've got to work with in order to get something done, which is a lot different right now than when you effectively elect a majority government, they can pretty much do whatever they want for four years. It's very hard to stop them. Think of how, what are the checks and balances in our system right now if you don't like the party in power? The courts. That's pretty much it. There's very little the opposition can do, especially in British Columbia, where the parliamentary procedure is a little more restrictive than it is in, say, Ottawa. So what you get from PR, uh, more a fairer electoral system, a more rational electoral system, and, and a more inclusive electoral system. And I'm very, very excited to get into the details as we go on to the questions. Great. Uh, thanks, David. And um, thank you for having me, Ian, and everybody. Um, as you, uh, we didn't get in the introduction, I led, as president of No BCSTV, the two uh, opposition campaigns, successful opposition campaigns against the single transferable vote in 2005 and 2009. And um, back at it again, I can't believe it, but there you go. Um, in any case, uh, and also the HST. Uh, and I just wanted to differ one small point with, with David, who is a political scientist, and I'm, I'm kind of a political scientist, I guess. Um, we do have two unique things in British Columbia, which nobody else has, recall and initiative. So there are, oops, sorry, thank you. So there are some uh, alternatives to the courts and opposition, which we uniquely have here. And in fact, uh, Bill Vanderzem and I, the odd couple, uh, worked on the HST campaign. Um, so why do I oppose proportional representation and, and by uh, obvious conclusion, support first past the post, our current system? Uh, I believe our current system of first past the post uh, is, is known for three things, simplicity, stability, and success. And with the exception of 1952-53 elections, we've had first past the post throughout our BC's political history and economic history. Um, the problems with proportional representation are, I could go all day, I literally could go all day, and David knows I could go all day because he's seen me start on that. It is very complicated, it's extremely complicated. It creates political and economic instability it gives parties more power and it gives voters less power. It removes more local control and more, more local accountability uh, over, that you as a voter have over your elected official. Um, we have enormous possible instabilities. I mentioned we look at Italy. Italy has had 65 governments in 70 years. 65 and 70 under proportional representation. We also see Israel as another example, Ireland another example, different types uh, of proportional representation systems, but the same problems. We just saw Germany, no government for six months. Uh, absolutely ridiculous. In a situation, we've got Brexit, we've got North Korea, we've got everything, and Angela Merkel is only the acting chancellor because there's, she has no majority in the Bundestag. So uh, we've got serious problems. Uh, David's talked about, and others will talk about, well, we'll have more parties in the legislature, and that sounds good. But what we really have under proportional representation is perpetual minority governments. So there's always backroom deals, and the backroom deals decide who will be the premier. Andrew Weaver decided who will be the premier. Not you, not me, not voters in any constituency, any riding. Andrew Weaver, Sonia Furstenau, and Adam Olson decided in a backroom negotiation who would become the premier of the province and under what policies. That's what forms the confidence and support bill. So they decided, we're going to do this. They negotiated with two different parties. Imagine that happening every single time there's an election and every single time 
there's a controversy or an issue which causes a division between the parties that have agreed previously to form a coalition or to form an alliance in government. That's what we saw in Germany. That's why it took so long. We saw that in New Zealand. The New Zealand First Party, uh, led by Winston Peters, who has been described as the Donald Trump of New Zealand, who has made racist comments about Asians and others, etc., who's been described by Australia, uh, New Zealand commentators as the far right in New Zealand, uh, went into a secret negotiations with his uh, unknown party executive, decided eventually to support Labour. He became the deputy prime minister under a Labour government. So we've got a, a far right guy under a Labour government because that's how they could form power uh, with a backroom deal. It took quite some time and, and it was a ridiculous situation. I may get to that later. So the smallest parties, perhaps the smallest party in the case of British Columbia, that got the least number of votes that's in the legislature decides who the, prime, who the premier is or the prime minister or the president in different countries. Um, proportional representation encourages extremist parties. There is no question about that. I encourage you to look at what's going on in Europe. We've got the Freedom Party in the Netherlands. Uh, I'm going to Holland. I have relatives in Holland. I'm going there. Uh, Gert Wilders, ban the Koran, close every mosque, throw them out of the country. That's his position. He's got the third largest party in the Netherlands right now, but he got in under proportional representation. And I'm not going to say, and I, I, David knows he's gone through a couple of debates with me, I'm not saying proportional representation is the reason for everything that's wrong with far right and extremism, but I am saying it gives legitimacy and it gives validity and a platform to people who don't deserve one. I don't want racist, sexist, homophobic, right-wing or left-wing lunatics in my legislature because they got as little as 1% of the vote. In Holland, it's 1%. You get into the legislature there. In other countries, it's 3 4 5%. And people say to me, you're just fear-mongering. You're just, you know, you're just stirring it up to, and that would never happen in British Columbia. I say, look at Barry Neufeld, the school trustee in Chilliwack right now, who has said he's completely against all the um, educational programs for, for teenagers in high school who are uh, who are gay or lesbian or, or coming out, and he wants to ban all that. He's extremist in his views, and he's an elected school trustee there. Ask yourself, do you think there are 5% of people in British Columbia who would support a party that was anti-Aboriginal, anti-gay marriage, anti-Chinese uh, Canadian, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim? 5% they get in, and they would potentially, that 5% could decide who the premier is and on what policies. I think this is extremely important, and particularly for a group like you folks. Um, so there's a lot more I could say about, about this, and I, I think I, I really like to debate it, but I, I think that the, the main points we've made is there. The one thing I did want to add, uh, two more things I did want to add. Local representation is greatly at risk. And if you look at and you think about the population of British Columbia, we now have a system where we have 87 separate ridings and 87 separate elections. You and I and any, nobody in this room, I think, got to vote for John Horgan or for Christy Clark, yet they became premier successively. Uh, you vote for your local representative, the party or parties with the most seats at the end of that election decide. So each community decides who's the best representative here and they send that person to Victoria. So uh, that's how our system works. If we go to proportional representation where the percentages, as David said, you get 30% of the vote, 30% of the seats. Well, most of the population lives in Metro Vancouver. And so Metro Vancouver plus Victoria will dominate provincial politics forevermore. And perhaps there are ways that that could be slightly ameliorated under some systems, but we've had nothing on that. So I wanted to make those two points. The, um, the last thing I'll say, which uh, I can't 
blame David for whatsoever, is, uh, and I can blame the government whose party I support and the premier I actually support on everything but this issue, pretty much. Uh, we don't know the question. We don't know the actual date. This must happen before November 30th. We don't know what the question will be. We don't know who will draw it up. We don't know whether third parties will be allowed to raise money. We don't know whether unions and businesses can participate or not participate in this debate. Uh, we don't know what the alternative proposal is or proposals are. And we have demanded, I'm uh, president of the No BC Proportional Rep Representation Society. We hope to be the proponent group opposing PR and supporting First Past the Post. We have said, show us the alternatives. We believe there should be two choices, as there were in the last two referendums. First past the post versus whatever the government and the Greens think is the best option, best alternative. Uh, show us, but if you're gonna have more than one, which is what they're talking about possibly, show us what the writings are for mixed member proportional, which is one of the systems. Show us what the writings would be for single transferable vote. How can you compare apples and oranges? A system where you know everything about it, you know who your representative is, you know what the writing boundaries are, versus a system where they say, well, we'll figure that out later. Just vote for it and we'll figure it out later. You know, take what's behind door number three. Let's make a deal here. Um, so I'm very disappointed in that and I'm concerned that they are not going to do that right through into the referendum. Anyway, thanks very much. Okay, well, there's a hell of a lot of uh, issues being raised by both of you. and But I want, first of all, to, to, to say that uh, it... I, I'm tired of people taking the the examples of Italy and Israel. Those are, are, are taken to the extreme. What we should be looking at are countries like Germany. And although yes, uh, there was a six-month uh, um, problem, you know, finding a coalition uh, in, in, uh, recently. In general, Germany and Sweden have had very stable coalition governments. I think, think a lot of people in Canada are afraid of the word coalition because we, we associate it with minority. It doesn't have to be that way. What uh, a coalition government by definition will have more than 50% of the seats. Um, now what happened in Germany and, 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 and Sweden, they have respectively 5% and 4% cutoff. And normally, I mean, we can't make absolute rules in politics, obviously, but um, normally that will give you a coalition of two or three parties. So this idea that you're going to have about nine or ten parties uh, when you have this cutoff thing uh, simply is not true. It, it wouldn't mathematically work out so that the idea of, of a party with one or two percent of the vote being able to make a uh, crucial decision, as they do indeed in Israel, and, and to, to the uh, detriment of any sort of democracy there, is, is completely um, uh, off, off the, the point. Uh, yeah, I'll be happy to respond. I mean, as you noted, I talked about New Zealand. I'm happy to talk about New Zealand, uh, Germany, other countries. Um, Talk about New Zealand first, uh, for example. Winston Peters, the um, Deputy Prime Minister, 7% of the vote in New Zealand, nine seats, not one local representative. They haven't elected a local representative since 1996, I believe. The Green Party has elected one local representative since 1996 as well. There's three parties in that coalition, Labour, uh, New Zealand First, and Greens. And uh, in the government itself, there are more members of the government side who are elected off of party lists 
than off of local constituencies. So most of those people are not accountable in the government, the entire government, are not accountable to any constituency. They do not have to go back and face their voters on any of their decisions. They just go around doing politics, etc. So we have a, a bizarre situation, in my view, where you have a government formed where most of the members of the government don't represent any local writing. Uh, I'll make two very quick points on that. The first is, you know, I think Bill is right. You know, there probably are five percent in the province who we wouldn't want to invite to our homes for dinner. Uh, may, you know, probably, right, sorry, that's true. For the specific reason that they're bigoted. Uh, now, and yet, um, we could get into a, a question of, well, should they not have representation nonetheless? I mean, do we, on what grounds do we decide who is fit for representation and who isn't? But that's a separate point. The point I think that I want to focus, that I'd rather focus on is this. Where do you think they exist and live now? Where do those people go? I suspect they're motivated. I suspect they don't stay home. I suspect they become Kelly Leach. Or they morph into Maxime Bernier, or some iteration of Maxime Bernier. Or they end up in existing political parties now and try to sway those political parties and try to capture those political parties. And they, or, or they join the BC Conservatives. Or who, by the way, every so often, catch, ride a wave, and become really quite influential. So my point is, they exist now, but they're hidden. In PR, you force them out. And what happens if they get elected? Easy. Imagine 87 seats with two people who are, or three people who are just wretched bigots. Well, what do you do with them? You marginalize them. You work with other parties. You bargain with other people. If you've got 87 elected officials, you have um, 87 people to choose from. You don't have to go to the lowest common denominator, um, and I don't think that we would in British Columbia. Uh, and, and in fact, if you look at the world's top democracies who happen to be PR countries, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Germany, New Zealand, uh, Finland, for instance, uh, they seem to get on just fine. And, I, and so when we're comparing, I do think I would agree we should compare to Germany, we should compare to New Zealand uh, rather than comparing to Israel and Italy. And by the way, final quick point, Canada has had plenty of elections since the Second World War. In fact, we average more elections than PR countries average. The difference is PR countries change governments internally without an election. So under PR, you would probably have more changes of government but you'd probably have fewer elections or about the same number of elections. You knocked some of my, I had two questions, you knocked them out of my mind. Uh, the reason I put my hand up for undecided is, because I'm undecided, I'm married to a PR guy, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he's, he's nodding. Yeah, right. Um, but I, and I do count what happens in Israel, because, you know, having been raised Jewish, whatever, it's the homeland, even though I never, I only lived there briefly. Um, because the right-wing religious wingnuts are really influencing this minor little country, which is the only real democracy, as much as they can be, in that whole area. So I'm concerned, very concerned about Israel. Not that I can do anything. I'm not a voter. Okay. And I'm also concerned about that's the, that's the religious end of it. And the other, the bigoted end that you guys mentioned, you say, where do they live? Yeah, some of them live in Abbotsford, you know, the anti-sex education and gay and all that stuff, live in Abbotsford. But you know what? 
Look about the, the country to the south of us. You wouldn't think that there were so m many uh, nice, good people on both sides. I mean, would you really envision in 2018 there would be a group with their tiki torches? You would never think that in the United States there would be that. Maybe in the south there would be a few here. And there. That is my big concern that, yes, they are underground now, but at least they don't have any power now. We give them two or three seats or whatever, like you said, then what do we do when they start collecting in, you know, like, all the people from all over that think like them but don't say anything and don't have a vote. I'm, I'm concerned we will end up with a neo-Nazi party. Nothing to stop new parties from starting. Like, they'll only start out small, but this is my big concern with PR, and as I said, against that. I understand the positives of PR. I, like, I, there are certain things. I do think that if if... 20% uh, of the people want the Greens in, they should have 20%. Because I frankly don't have a whole lot against that they may be a little more extreme about environmental issues than I am. But it's not a terrible thing. But neo-Nazism, yeah, there's no question. How do you answer that? Like, do you understand that there's um, a fine line there? How do you answer that? Well, the, the, the first thing you do is you set a threshold so of 5%. And I think the 5% threshold is going to minimize the chances of, of the neo-Nazi party rising in British Columbia, in part because you need to get 5% in the district, for instance. Say we have districts. I agree with Bill, incidentally, that it's, it's unconscionable that we don't have the question yet and as much information as we possibly can to inform people. I have no defense of that. Um, I completely agree with Bill. It's inappropriate. It's making my life more difficult, too, not just Bill's. And so that's how you know that it's particularly bad when, when me and Bill agree about something, you know that that thing has got to be just wretchedly <laughs> awful. At least when it comes to PR, I think we agree on, on most other things. So, so that's very frustrating. But, you know, say the threshold is 5%. Well, you'd have to imagine that all of those folks out there who are, are quite scared and would rather not would all congregate around one party. Well, the truth is that vote would probably be fragmented into several different parties. And so the question is, is really, okay, well, which countries are we going to look at to see, well, you know, what do we expect? And I would say you look at Germany, you look at New Zealand, and those countries haven't been taken over and, and directed by the far right. Uh, they, they exist there, but if you look, in fact, Germany is performing, compared to, say, the United Kingdom, quite well in, in a lot of ways. I would argue the United Kingdom has become much more problematic than Germany, and yet the United Kingdom, which currently operates a government which is supported by the far right, um, under first-past-the-post. Now, you, you brought up the example of the United States. Well, look at who's running the United States. That was a first-past-the-post system, not the presidential system. The president was elected by a different system, by the Electoral College, but the congressional system that supports Donald Trump is a first-past-the-post system. So my point being there is, is, is that's not about the electoral system. That's about political culture. And a lot of the things that we think of as, as dangerous and undesirable there's something about those countries that's different than British Columbia, and it's a political culture. What's, what is it about Italy? There's a history there. What is it about Israel? There's a history there. What is it about America? 
there's a history there that has to do with race and has to do with polarization and has to do with the decline of norms and all kinds of stuff. But that's not about the electoral system. That's about the political culture on the ground. The political culture, culture in British Columbia is actually quite robust. It is among the stronger d democratic political cultures in the world. So I like to think of it, I'll end on this point, as like as soil. The political culture is the soil. And what you plant in the soil is going to um, grow according to the quality of the soil. High quality soil in British Columbia. In Italy, slightly less high quality soil. <laughs> Politically, incidentally, the actual soil is actually quite good. <laughs> well, I'm going to dish the dirt. <laughs> uh, I want to start. Uh, I share your concerns about extremists, obviously. And my father lived through the German occupation of Holland and Nazis and uh, Holocaust issues and everything else that was involved in the Dutch resistance. So I, I find the European situation extremely scary. Um, uh, Philippa Norris from Harvard University professor wrote, majoritarian electoral systems, that's first th past the post, work exactly as proponents claim by excluding extreme parties from parliament. And as expected, radical right parties gain their greatest parliamentary rewards under proportional representation elections. Uh, despite having roughly the same share of the vote, radical right parties were more than twice as successful in gaining seats under proportional representation as under majority, majoritarian elections. So that's the academic side of it. Um, when we look around, and, and one of the earlier questions was asked about other countries, in Austria we now have the Freedom Party, the far-right Freedom Party. It was formerly led uh, by a Nazi functionary and SS officer. They recently threw out their leader, Hans Christian Streich, uh, participated in neo-Nazi um, neo-Nazi uh, movement activities based on Hitler Youth, and several other members have been suspended for anti-Semitic and Nazi comments or actions. They now control the Interior Ministry and the Defense Ministry. They are in the government. Hans Christian Strack is a cabinet minister under a fairly far-right uh, other party. Um, they're anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim, uh, pro-tax cuts. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. When we look over to Germany, which you mentioned, the AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland, uh, they won 94 seats in a proportional representation election with 13% of the vote. They actually only have three members who won constituencies. 91 of their 94 members were elected from a party list. And I'm going to talk about party list in a bit, which is a separate issue. Um, in, in the Netherlands, as I mentioned, uh, the Freedom Party there, who have an absolutely radical perspective. Um, by comparison, when we look, and many of you will remember UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party, and Nigel Farage, uh, Donald Trump's friend, in the uh, 2015 elections under first past the post the United Kingdom, they won 12.6% of the vote. They should have had 80 to 90 seats. They got one because when people looked at the UKIP candidates in their riding said, that guy, that woman, is not the kind of person we want sending to Parliament, and they refused to. In the following election, 2017, they dropped to 1.8%, had no seats. Uh, in that previous election, 12.6%, they got one seat out of 650. So as I've said to you, the first-past-the-post system has, like every system, has different flaws and advantages. One thing it does do, keep extremists out. And that's one of the reasons, strongest reasons I support it. Two questions for Bill. <laughs> Two questions. One, could you please define for me what you mean by instability and please define it as a function of the election process rather than social foment that's been there for centuries, okay? Because any election is going to show that to some extent. The second one is whenever I hear people against PR, they always talk about radical parties 
that we could never tolerate getting a chance to be in Parliament or in whatever form of elected government. Why don't we ever talk about maybe there would be an Enlightenment Now party that believes in using science and evidence before we make political decisions? We had a speaker here last year who is forming that kind of a party. And it's possible if they actually believe they could get proportional representation, you would have voices of reason in your parliament. Why do we only, like you, give only the most radical examples for what proportional representation might be able to do? Sure. Well, I think I've actually just outlined why they're not radical proposals at all, because we see in reality around the world what's going on, number one. Number two, we see people in this province, in this country, who are uh, radical, who are extreme. We've had uh, we've had neo-Nazis in our military. We've had situations like that. And I'm not saying that there's a huge number. I, I'm not, someone said, here, Tillman's saying there's Nazis under every bed. And I'm not saying that. I am saying, though, and I think most people in this room would agree, that there is, an, there is a, uh, a constituency uh, or a group within this province that would vote for an anti-Aboriginal, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, anti-gay marriage uh, type of politics. And I'm afraid that's true. On, in terms of the, uh, the positive side, Sure, if a positive, enlightened, I mean, Justin Trudeau says he's scientific-based evidence, I mean, that's why he's supporting Kinder Morgan and et cetera. I mean, you know, <laughs> politicians say lots of things that they believe or don't believe, and then the, the, it's up to David and people like him to figure out the actual truth of the matter and write about it. Uh, but are there positives to it? I mean, we're going to have fragmented party system, there's no question. The BC Liberals will probably split into BC Conservatives and BC Liberals. Uh, that's a, the BC Liberal Party, as most of you know, like social credit to some degree before it, is a coalition of federal conservatives and federal liberals. Some federal liberals tend to be New Democrats provincially and others BC Liberal. So we'll see a multiplicity of parties, which is David's agreed as well. And some of those parties may well be, maybe they'll be sweetness and light, uh, and some will not. And I, we can't tell in advance, but what we do know is the best way to figure out what might happen in our country, in our province, is look at real life examples. And so that's why I focus on, not just on Europe, but uh, New Zealand. Uh, Winston Peters is a, is a disaster. He is the deputy prime minister because that's how Labour was able to overcome the National Party to become the government. And they're willing to do deals with the devil, backroom deals with the devil to get there. And believe you me, every political party, given the opportunity to form government or sit in the opposition benches, will look at those policies. Uh, Jacinda, Jacinda Ardern agreed to some very strong anti-immigration policies that the Labour Party did not have, but New Zealand first did, because that made her Prime Minister. So those kind of political deals are going to happen, and going to happen on a regular basis. We haven't talked yet about how a PR government, a PR system, I should say, works within the parties. The parties will choose what's called a PR list, a proportional representation list, in most systems. Mixed member proportional, New Zealand, Germany, uh, uh, Sweden, I think, I don't know who else, a lot of them use MMP, um, where there is a balance, or a two separate ca categories of MLA, those who are elected in a local constituency or riding, and those who are on the party list. Who's at the top of the party list? The party leader. Who's second? The deputy leader. And then there's a hierarchy set by the party, and it's the party that decides that, and the party bosses and the party internal process. So when you go as a voter and say, I'm going to vote for the Green Party generally, and they'll pick people off a list, 
the Green Party decided who was going to be at the top and who's at the bottom, or the NDP, or the BC Liberals, whoever. And so that's the way those systems work. So we're giving more part power to the parties and less to the voters, because the voters will have, uh, if you look at British Columbia, and this is important, there are 87 ridings currently. If we had mixed member proportional, you would only have two choices. Increase the number of seats, or the number of legislators, increase the number of politicians by probably an extra 40 to 50 seats in order to make it proportional, or reduce the number of, of uh, local constituencies from 87 down to maybe 50 or 55. Uh, maybe down to the federal levels, and that would, and the rest would be now list members. So we would have either less local representation or way more politicians, and we'd still have this group of politicians who are not accountable to a riding, are not accountable to local voters, they're only accountable to the cross the province vote. Um, something that hasn't been talked about by the BC government, how do you recall a bad MLA if they were elected off a party list? You don't have a party. Do you have to do a petition across the entire province to get rid of this person and get 40% of those voters? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's impossible to do that. Um, there's all sorts of additional problems with this, but the party list uh, system is very problematic in my view, in addition to other things I've mentioned. Well, I already saw, said previously, in Italy, 65 governments in 70 years. We can go through it. In the same period, in the same, well, now we're, uh, now we're, I'm answering, I'm answering. Yes, 65, I just said that, 65 governments in 70 years. In the UK in the same period, there were 25 governments. So that goes to stability. When you have constant non-majority governments where, um, where you have uh, each individual party can decide by issue whether they're going to walk on the government and you have to start a new coalition building, new backroom negotiations every time, when people in business and people who have jobs are worried about different economic issues or political issues, and you don't know how long the government's going to last. We had uh, also in Belgium, they, they longest re on record, I think just over a year with no official government. Um, that is instability. So I, I th I'll let me speak first to, to Bill's point about party control and what we currently have. Does anyone here know how a political nomination works under our current system? That's a trick question because the candidates themselves don't know. There's a great book called Tragedy in the Commons in which they talk to former members of parliament and they say, tell me how you got elected. And most of the interviews, their exit interviews, once these folks have left office, amount to them shrugging and saying, damned if I know. Uh, let's, let's not pretend that there isn't plenty of central office control as it is. That's been the case certainly since Pierre Trudeau in the 1960s and the centralization of power into the Premier's office or to the Prime Minister's office has only grown in, in those years. So that's nominations. Uh, second of all, how many recalls have been successful in the history of British Columbia? Uh, where you try to, you don't like a member and so you initiate a process to recall them and have another election. Anyone? How many? I can't think of any. I know of none. Um, in terms. Right, right, exactly. Before he was right, before he was tossed. So uh, recall doesn't, it, it works a bit as a bludgeon, but it doesn't typically return members. And in fact, as far as initiative's concerned, um, very rare does, uh, is it that initiative works. Yeah, it takes a lot of work. Uh, it's, it's rarely undertaken and a lot of resources. And in fact, um, it, it's functionally, these things are functionally not used. Okay, fine. How about... Uh, individual MLAs representing you. There were 8,000 8, votes in the last legislature, in individual votes. How many of those votes went against party lines? Does anyone want to take a guess? It's higher than you think, but lower than you'd hope. 
Any guesses? We got two. We'll do it Price is Right style. Closest two without going over. Two. Anyone else want to take a guess? Take a for a chance to spin the wheel. How many how many votes in the last legislature in which an MLA voted against their party out of eight thousand? Fifteen. All right. Five. Do you really mean to tell me that your local MLA just happened to represent both you and their party 7,995 times out of 8,000? I don't think so. No, I mean, we sent MLAs who become party servants. Under proportional representation, at least those MLAs are going to be closer to you and what you like because you're going to be more likely to have voted for one of them uh, because they represent your interests. And then finally, on the instability question, I mean, I agree with you, so it's, it's tough to to answer a question when you agree with the premise, and, and but I'll say this. Instability is a problem, but at what point does stability become a problem if you define stability as once a government is elected, there's no way to check them? <laughs> and I would argue that given the three things I just suggested, the nominations, the initiative, the recall, and the, and the votes, uh, once you've elected a party, there's effectively nothing to stop them. And you might say, well, well the next election will get them. Well, tell that to the 16 years of, of BC Liberal government that you may have liked or may not have liked, or the 16 years of Ontario Liberal government, or the 10 years of Federal Conservative government, or whatever it may be. Once these parties get elected, it's very hard to dislodge them because they only need to get 39% of the vote to stay in power. Uh, and so proportional representation is going to shake that up. And that's part of the reason why a little bit of instability, which I would actually call uh, democratic responsiveness, is desirable. First, I tend to lean to first past the post, but I th think uh, this is directed to this whole idea, is I don't think you're thinking outside the box. You've got this, it's this system or this system. Nobody, ex come on, let's, let's do some thinking and come up with some new ideas. Or let's change in the first past the post, uh, we need to get more power back to the local MLAs, I agree with you on that point that uh, like uh, let the MLAs remove the party leader as they do in Britain as opposed to having to go to a vote of the convention. Uh, I think the powers of the whip have to be curtailed drastically. Uh, I don't agree that the proportional representation, the, uh, the members are closer to the people. I think there's no better than directly past the post. Um, I would like to see the which used to be here 20 or 30 years ago, remove the requirement that the party leader sign the nomination papers, put it back to the grassroots, um, make less votes, confidence votes, that allow people to break, so you don't get five, you get, so money votes, crowd speech, they could be your confidence votes, and maybe odd piece of legislation. And let the opposition decide, not the government say, well this is a confidence vote or not. Um, if you go to first past the post, like some of the things you might think, think about is, why don't we go to runoff elections? You don't get a plurality on the first buy, you have a runoff a week, two weeks later. Um, the, uh, I mean, this is really out the back thing, but when you pick a nomination for a party, is there any way we could come up with something similar to the primaries in the states, where it's a broader, instead of just a party insiders get picked them, make them broader. Um, and the recall and referendum requirements, if we're going to keep them, they need to be relaxed. I think the only referendum that went through, 
was one that Bill supported, which I think it was the dumbest one we've ever done, was the GST. HST. I mean, that was stupid that we got rid of it. Yeah. And so my comment is, I know when we did it before, we had the mixed transferable ballot. I can't remember the exact name. But why don't you try and come up with something completely innovative instead of saying, well, this country does it, we'll try that, or this is what we do now. Let's be smart. Let's try and get something completely different and imp or improve what we've got. Well, um, we almost did that with STV because it's really only used in two countries nationally, Ireland and uh, Malta, two tiny island countries. So that was, that was kind of thinking out of the box in, in my view. Uh, I think uh, you and I and, and David probably agree on a number of things. And I, after Justin Trudeau canceled the uh, electoral change referendum situation, I wrote a column in the TAI. Uh, about all the different things you can do to fix democracy. And uh, David and I were just talking before. We both agree with mandatory voting. We think it should be mandatory. You've got to pay your taxes. You've got to vote. Counts, you, know, you, could, you could spoil your ballot. You could write in no, none of the above, whatever. But uh, in Australia, where that's used, the turnout is 92, 93, 94 percent. And the fine is relatively minor. I think it's $20, $25 if you don't vote. And they have enormous turnout. And that gets rid of any voter suppression issues whatsoever, which way better than any other electoral system would do. Um, you could, as you say, you could have the budget must be passed by 65 percent of the legislature, force the parties to, to negotiate and cooperate. Um, many of the concerns that regard first past the post that I think some of the ones that you raised and others have raised are not to do with the electoral system. They're to do with the parliamentary system and the party system. Um, I would argue that Carol James, Gordon Campbell, uh, Bill Van Der Zam, they were all removed as leaders by their parties, by their MLAs. They were forced out. I, I, if you read, uh, we were just talking about the new book, A Matter of Confidence by Richard Zussman and Rob Shaw. Uh, there were eight to 11 MLA, liberal MLAs who were signing a letter to get rid of Gordon Campbell. There was the Baker's Dozen 13 that sign, did sign a letter and made it public to uh, tell Carol James she had to go. So we do have those kind of powers. MLAs do have the power to remove the leader. If, if there's a lack of confidence in the House and our parliamentary system, uh, then we have a, a situation where the governor general is either going to change the government or call an election. The, um, so there's a number of things there. In terms of this consultation and what we're going to happen here, um, we're too late to start telling the government. I mean, we can say anything we want, but the government is not thinking outside the box. They've outlined five possible electoral systems. I will say that something I found quite disturbing, the NDP caucus joined with the Green caucus to put forward a submission to the, uh, to the government engagement process saying, we want you to hold a ballot that says, are you in favor uh, of first past the post or not? And if you're not in favor, if a majority are not in favor, then the government will develop some proportional representation electoral system after the referendum and implement it. So uh, just vote no and trust us, we're from government. Uh, we'll fix your problem. Um, and just base it on principles. And that's an actual caucus position of the two parties that are actually in majority right now. So um, that concerns me a great deal. I, I suspect it's a bad idea, but it's certainly a possibility that they're very seriously looking at it. So if you were to say to me, Dave, you're going to be Catherine the Great or Frederick of Prussia, and you're going to be the enlightened despot for a period of time, and you're going to transition us to your ideal form of democracy. What, what is it that you'd like to do? I would take most of what you just said and build it into the system. I would build in mandatory voting. I would lower the voting age. I would allow permanent residents to vote. I would ensure more free votes. I love the idea of, of returning uh, power to the caucus to decide their leaders. So if Margaret Thatcher 
pops over to France for lunch one day and she finds she comes back that she's out of a job, then so be it. You haven't done absolutely what happened. And, and that's fantastic. I think that's utterly appropriate. Um, I would also, though, include mixed member proportional. Now, I'll, I'll declare my bias here. Again, I wish we knew what we were voting on specifically. And if it turns out that the government is gaming the process, uh, you, I'll be the first to, to criticize them out of the gate. I've done it in the past. Well, I mean, yes, of course, every, every political party tries to get what they want, but at least we have a referendum to check it. Uh, I would choose mixed member proportional. That happens to be the system I prefer. I'm speaking for myself here and no one else. And the reason I prefer it is this. It's used in a few countries. It's used in Germany. It's used in New Zealand. It's used in Bolivia, I think, as well. It's not particularly common. The, the vast majority of proportional representation systems are, are pure list PR. That's unlikely to be on the table in British Columbia for all kinds of reasons. So list probably won't happen. Uh, mixed member proportional, I think, is good for a few reasons. One of them is it's a bargain. You have list members, but you also have constituency members. So you would go to the polls, and just like now, you would elect a single member to represent you, and then you would also choose from a list. And so you'd get what I would say the, the best of both worlds. So you'd have a ballot either two ballots or a ballot split into two. Who do you want your local representative to be? And then who do you want these quote unquote top up seats to be? So you, everyone elects a local member under MMP. So everyone has their person to go to and say, hey, buddy, here's this thing I don't like, or help me with my passport, or help me with an immigration case, or you know, I don't like the way you voted on this or that, or I want you to vote this way. And then on the proportional side, you have a list of people who are elected to balance things out in general, on aggregate, to make sure that the returns are fair. Imagine that alongside a threshold to make sure that the true nutters are kept out, or most of them at least. You would still get the odd Mike DeYoung and so on, but you know, oh, I've declared another bias, I see. But you would also have mandatory voting and free votes and the rest of it. So that's, if anyone wants to declare me just for a little while to be the dictator like they used to do in Rome up until Caesar decided that he liked the power too much to give it back. If you're looking for a dictator, I would certainly self-sacrifice, not unlike Cincinnatus, so. Um, yeah, I think, I think what I, I have to ask is probably already been spoken about, but um, it, it seems to me that in times of stability when the economy is going really well and everybody's working, or not everybody's working, but there's a good unemployment rate and everything is nice and stable, you're going to get um, first past the post or um, proportional representation. It probably doesn't matter. But, I, but what happens when the economy starts to fail and people are out of work and people are desperate and um, then their biases come through, their, their prejudices come through, their discriminations come through, and then they're going to vote based on fear of the other. I think that in a society that is not um, particularly homogeneous, you're, gonna, you're probably going to have a lot more fear dictating who's going to be ruling than, um, than otherwise. And I'm thinking that perhaps, and probably I'm wrong, I don't know, but anyhow, in that, Countries that have proportional representation now, they seem to be fairly homogeneous in their, in their populations. And uh, maybe, maybe that makes a difference. Maybe that's better in some situations and, and not better in other ones. I don't know. Well, so PR is the most common form of government uh, across throughout the world. Some of those countries are, are homogenous, some of them aren't. So, uh, you know, New Zealand, not so much. New Zealand is actually quite diverse. Germany is quite diverse as well. In fact, 
Germany, incidentally, under with MMP, has been handling their their diversity challenges, which are common throughout Europe, actually quite well. Uh, and in Germany's in a position where you'd expect it perhaps not to go particularly well because of geography, because of history, because of all kinds of things. And yet it's actually going f far better than, than you might expect. So there is that. I would agree with you. In times of crisis, uh, things get very, very difficult. But that said, if you look throughout the history, if we're talking about PR as coalition governments, throughout history, during times of crisis, we've actually had coalition governments, for instance, during the war. Uh, and those have done quite well. Uh, you find that even under conditions of coalition or, or diversity in the legislature, when, it, when push comes to shove, groups do, can and do band together. And I would, I would give a counterexample to, to your concerns, which I think are legitimate. We've had 16 years of, of liberal government during good economic times. And I would suggest that the, the fruits of, the, of those labors have not been distributed in such a way that they're shared equitably among the population. Um, so I think part of the reason the NDP is the government right now is that the BC Liberals didn't understand that even if the economy is doing well, if that's not shared in a way that allows people to be able to afford their childcare, to afford their prescriptions, to afford their home, to afford to send their kids to school, then people start to look at the system and say, well, how is it serving me? That was 16 years of first past the post that didn't serve a lot of people. So I'd argue that a lot of the concerns we're seeing now um, would be addressed by a PR government in which you'd be more likely to have uh, a diversity of views that says, actually, let's return some of the goods of this performing economy back to the people uh, so that folks can, can afford to live. And if you look at the current arrangement with the Greens, that's effectively what's happened. And that's effectively a PR-style arrangement that reflects, I would argue, I mean, Bill raised the, the point, which is a fair interpretation, that, well, we've got the Greens deciding behind closed doors who's going to govern. What I would flip that and say, actually, what you have is a majority of seats and a majority of voters represented by two parties who've crafted a, a policy agenda largely based on what they, govern, uh, they campaigned on that now allows the government to address all these concerns that didn't go addressed for some, for some years. And, and the final point is, if your real concern is, well, what about folks you know, using fear to become bigoted and so on and so forth? Well, France is, France is first past the post, though. So, um, so, but, uh, well, it, or runoff, incidentally. So, it's, yeah, it's a mix. So, the French, the France, the France, the presidency in France is runoff, and, and the, the legislature's not. So, in, in fact, you have what I would, what's known as a, as a majoritarian system in France, not a proportional system in France. Um, so, my, which, which brings me to my point. The political culture is what's going to determine a lot of that. So, what you really need to look at is, okay, well, what's driving all this stuff? And is, is British Columbia the same as the Netherlands? Is it the same as Italy? Is it the same as Israel? And my argument is that it's absolutely not. Well, predictably, I say, yes, it is. <laughs> uh, just to give you some idea of what's going on there, and I, I, I share your concern uh, completely. Um, Gert Wilders in the Netherlands, uh, the second largest party in Holland now. Um, he is an extremist. He uh, started his campaign by denouncing, quote, Moroccan scum who make the streets unsafe. He's convicted of inciting discrimination against Dutch Moroccans. His manifesto includes close all mosques and Islamic schools, ban the Koran, de-Islamize the Netherlands, zero asylum seekers and no immigrants anymore from Islamic countries, close the borders, withdraw all asylum residency permits, which have already been granted for specific periods, close asylum centers, and no Islamic headscarves in public functions. So that's 
the Freedom Party in the Netherlands, the second largest party, uh, which started from nothing. Um, in Germany, which is an MMP, oh, Lesotho is another country with MMP, I quickly looked up. Um, in Germany, we have the AFD, or Alternative for Deutschland. Um, the, uh, uh, again, it won, uh, as I said, it won 13% of the vote, 94 seats, 91 of them are all party list seats. Uh, one of the only constituency representatives said in, his, in one of his opening or campaign speeches, we are being heterogenized and diluted, and the German people are meant to silently accept this change and ultimately the loss of our homeland. Um, these guys are pretty scary. Um, so, again, I'm not saying proportional representation will turn uh, BC into Germany or the Netherlands or Austria. Austria is even scarier than all this because they're actually in power. But there is a reasonable chance that one party with 5% or 6% or 7% of the vote will decide who governs. And uh, I, I mean, one of the things that I, I emphasize, I don't like, I'm an, a new Democrat, obviously. I don't like the BC Liberals. But uh, you could say, so a lot of people say, well, 16 years of this horrible government. Well, if the basis of choosing your electoral system is to get rid of one party and put another in power, you have a big problem. The system should work well for everybody. It should work well for each side. And under first past the post, one of the great advantages of it is you can very easily change governments. Uh, you can throw governments out. When people get to a conclusion, they want them gone. Look at Brian Mulroney and the Conservatives down to two seats. Look at the NDP down to two seats here in British Columbia. So those are, that's one of the advantages that when the elections come and people make a decision, they can get rid of a government and clean it right out very easily. That's not easily done because you never get majorities under proportional representation, like just never. Uh, I can't think of any examples in recent history of that. So I think that uh, we have to be extremely careful when talking about changing systems and just say, well, we won't have Christy Clark and Gordon Campbell to kick around anymore. Uh, we might have them forever. Uh, that's another possibility because we'll have a couple of right-wing parties and extreme right-wing party that consistently would say, yeah, you, you, we will support you right-wing parties in the BC legislature as long as you start getting rid of immigrants and cutting back on First Nations and ending uh, gay program, uh, programs for gay kids in school, et cetera, et cetera. Then we'll put you in power and you will stay in power. Sure. Thanks, both, both of you, David and uh, Bill. Um, yeah, I, I'm looking more at evolution rather than revolution. I, we all these different ideas that we that we have um, online voting uh, does the percentage go up uh, Senate voting um, mandatory voting all these things can be tweaked and tried and and experimented as opposed to throwing out one system and putting in another I'm wondering if evolution versus revolution is the better way to go and to see if because you're never going to get perfection so and I don't think people expect perfection and they shouldn't so I'm wondering if Tweaks are the way to go. Thank you. I, I agree with tweaks, but I prefer the try it before you buy it model. So one thing that the government, I suspect, will adopt is this. You will, we choose a system. If it is a PR system, you try it for two electoral cycles or 10 years, and then there's another referendum on whether or not you want to keep it. I suspect that is going to be, the, the chatter I've heard is that is going to be included um, as part of the, the PR plan. So in some senses, you get the nice benefit of evolution plus, because if you don't like what's evolved, you can actually go back. Wouldn't that be nice? I can think of a few evolutionary changes that I wouldn't mind giving back. Uh, exactly. So, so I do, and New Zealand did that, incidentally. And New Zealand had PR for a long time. They recently had a referendum. They voted on, on choosing to keep PR by, I think it was something like 54%. So yes, evolution and tweaks, but try it before you buy it as well. 
Yeah, I think that that's probably a better way to go. And um, consensus. Uh, and I think some of the changes we've talked about, I mean, there's all sorts of changes that legislators could make on their own right now. Some of the things that the other gentleman talked about and that David and I have talked about, there's all sorts of things that could, you could do right now um, without having a, 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 an actual referendum. My concern is, I mean, we had two referendums. The last one was, in my view, definitive. I don't think we need this referendum. I don't think this, I mean, God bless all you people. Well, I guess that's the wrong word to use here. <laughs> I'm, I'm an agnostic anyway, but but bless all you people for coming out here and talking, but most people don't give a rat's ass about this issue. This is not, this doesn't even show up on polling what's your top issue. It is so far down the list, and we haven't even talked about turnout because this is a standalone ballot, and we haven't talked about uh, a threshold or re there's no regional thresholds. If everybody in Vancouver votes in favor and everybody outside of Vancouver votes against, it'll pass. Um, so we're heading towards, in my view, uh, potentially a constitutional crisis with this if it's a low turnout. In PEI, the Premier turned, refused to proceed because it was a low turnout. But uh, the government, David Eby just said in question period on Thursday, they're going to go ahead no matter what. 10% turnout, that's okay. We're going to do it. And so that will lead potentially to at some future government saying, we had this system imposed on us wrongly with a low turnout and it wasn't democratic, so we're going back to the old system, we're going to another system. That is instability, my friends. Yeah, just on the point that uh, Trump was elected under a first-past-the-post system. Uh, so we have to point out that there are, you know, bad examples on both sides. Um, regarding um, direct uh, democracy, for example, in the U.S., there are states that have uh, initiatives, kind of like referendums, right? Would you, would you support uh, that to be done also through first-past-the-post, in, in first meaning by uh, electoral districts uh, versus the way it's done, which is done uh, under proportional representation? Um, two things. Uh, Trump was elected under an electoral college, and the Americans elect their president a separate from as their leader. We don't do that. We elect individual members and individual writings who then decide, and their leader becomes, or that leader becomes, uh, the prime minister or the premier. So it is actually a different system. And don't get going on electoral college. It's kind of crazy. But it's not really a first past post in that regard. Um, initiatives, yeah. I mean, our American friends use all sorts of initiatives. Uh, I'm familiar. I've been down to Seattle, work on transit initiatives. Um, it's kind of, I, I'm more in favor of direct, direct democracy. And, and I was very happy that the HST referendum was successful in just getting the minimum threshold. And I agree with another gentleman said, improve, make it easier to recall, and make it easier to have initiatives or proposals and make them binding. I think that's certainly something we should have. If these, those initiatives and, and direct democracy initiatives should be done under first-past-the-post, in other words, should be done locally to, based on the electoral districts or the way it's done everywhere in the world today, which is through as proportional representation? Uh, well, initiatives, recall an initiative here and initiatives in the United States are, there are some that are local for local funding, like a municipal thing, and there's others that are statewide, like, for example, legalizing marijuana. So I think it depends on what it is. Yeah, but statewide is done based on proportional representation. No, no, it's not. We're talking about initiatives. Yes, yes or no, legalized marijuana, yes or no, all across Colorado, all across Washington. That's right, okay. I think he's trying to ask if there's, if you would prefer a province-wide ballot referendum to be done in each of the 87 districts and we use 
the majority of the districts rather than the majority of the vote? Oh, well, yeah, in the, in the previous two referendum, there were two conditions, 60% of the vote, which I support, and it's now 50% plus one, which I don't agree with. And secondly, you had to have 60% of the ridings voting in favor, which I also support, which we support, which has also been eliminated. So uh, this, this particular um, referendum will be most votes counted across the province, no, re no turnout requirement, no regional requirement, just whoever gets the most votes wins. Yeah, hi, thanks. Uh, both very interesting uh, presentations. Um, so far, what I've concluded from all this is that the uh, pros and cons uh, between, the t between the two systems that we're thinking about um, pretty much obtain for both of them. <clears throat> the only difference being that the proportional uh, representation uh, approach is a little bit fairer. And I, 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 I still support PR, by the way, but uh, I'm concerned that uh, PR is going to lose because of the lack of a, of a clear definition at this point. And I was sort of hoping that at some point uh, PRBC would uh, say this is the exact system that we want and, uh, you know, basically come out and say this is it, push for that, and, uh, you know, all the propaganda can then compare what would happen. You know, you could do some modeling and say, okay, given the... Uh, how the vote fell out in the last five elections, here's what would have happened versus what actually happened. As a, as a democratic theorist, I have a very particular conception of how I would prefer this thing to be run. As a person who's cooperating with other people and campaigning for something, I have to park all of that. And as an academic and a narcissist, that is very difficult to do. It boils down to this. I mean, we've got to play by the rules that are set by the government. And we could try to nudge those rules, but the government's going to decide what it's going to decide, and then we're all going to have to play by the same rules. I wish we had a very clear understanding of what it is that we're going to do, what the rules are going to be, and what the systems are going to be. That would make everyone's life a lot easier, but we don't. And, and because we don't, uh, all, we, all we can do right now is sort of sit on our hands and wait and talk very generally, and, and that's too bad. Uh, I would say that and this is me speaking, I'm going to argue against myself and against my interests a little bit here, which is how you know that I mean it. Um, you know, Christopher Hitchens told this great story of, of his friend John O'Sullivan who had used a thought experiment as if, if the Pope says he believes in God, you say, well, the Pope's doing his job again today. If the Pope says he's starting to doubt God, you think he might be onto something. So I'm going to borrow that spirit for a second and say this, as me, I think that previous referendums were too constraining. The 60% threshold was unreasonable. I think 50% plus one is appropriate, but I, I would personally support a regional threshold because I don't believe it's appropriate for the metro areas to determine potentially what the system's going to be. But we're not going to get that. So here's what I think should happen. Everyone who's working on this, pro, con, whatever, should commit out of the gate to getting as much turnout as we possibly can get because I believe it's, it's very important that we get a high turnout and a, high, and a turnout across the province for this. And that's what I would like to see as an individual who's committed to, to procedure. But at the end of the day, what boils down to this, we, we're all going to play by the same rules, whatever those rules end up being. And Bill, you know, maybe that puts Bill at a bit of a disadvantage, but he has so many years of experience that I think it levels out. Well, I disagree with this, David. I actually think there is something we can do, and I think that the call that my group has made should be made by other groups and say, we want 
to have one system versus another system. Premier Horgan promised that before the election. It'll be a simple two choices, the current system and another system. Now they're all over Hell's Half Acre on this, on this map. If we have two systems with two sets of writings and two sets of procedures, then we can all say, okay, regardless of what we might want in a perfect world, we can actually examine both systems, compare and decide, and that is democracy. If we have five systems, four of, one of which we know and we know the writings, which is first past the post, and four others that might or might not have you know, 87 writings, it might have 155 writings, might have a PR list, not PR list. That is not a way to make a good decision. And I think I think it's fraught with peril. So I think people should be saying, you should say, tell your MLA, send letters to the editor, talk to talk radio and say, we have to have a clear pair of electoral systems. It's the only way to decide apples and apples here. Thank you both for coming out and giving us um wonderful presentation. I, I can't say it's helped me make up my mind, but anyway. <laughs> um, would it be, would people were talking about tweaking the systems or whatnot, would it be easier to do the tweaks under PR as, or, or with the system we've already, sorry, with the system we've already got? Uh, it could happen under either and more likely to happen under neither, um, but it really, it re I mean, it really is up to, um, you know, we say political parties, but I mean, John Horgan uh, did not have to support having a referendum. I mean, it was part of his agreement with the Greens, so you can say, yeah, but the Greens didn't want a referendum at all. They just wanted to impose proportional representation, which I, I mean, I think would have been a disaster and I would have fundamentally opposed. Uh, I think people have to have a choice. But that said, on making these changes, some of these changes most of these changes that David and I have talked about, mandatory voting would just be a vote in the legislature. Just do it. Um, you know, deciding to remove some of the powers of, uh, of the leader and the whip, uh, you can just do it right now. It's not a problem. Now, uh, my friend Sean Holman, the journalist, did a documentary called Whipped, talking about party discipline and how bad it is. The flip side, though, is when, when, and everybody in this room will have an example, when somebody in a political party said they do one thing and they don't do it, or they do another, you know, so they don't have the party discipline, they didn't follow the party policy, those kind of things. So those things infuriate us as well. So we kind of want it both ways. We want people to do what we think is the right thing and, and change that and the other, and then we also want them to follow the, the party line. Lastly, I, I meant to mention this before, having the leader sign the papers for a candidate, um, removing that would allow a small group in a local constituency, uh, like some of the lunatics I've already described who might have their own party, to nominate a candidate and the leader couldn't say, well, that guy or that woman is racist, sexist, homophobic, I'm not signing their papers. Then it's just the local writing and God help us. Thank you. Uh, given the constituency of BC, a multicultural, Im largely immigrant society, wouldn't the danger of uh, proportional representation be that there will be ethnical parties, like for example, so the East Indians, the Sikh, the Chinese, will be very ethnical, very national, their own uh, old homeland nationality, and that will fracture a new identity that is being trying, that is in the process of being created, a Canadian, British Columbian, North American identity. Uh, that's definitely a concern that I have um, on religious basis. We already have, it still exists, the Christian Heritage Party. I'm sure you folks are all members. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think it was Heather Stilwell, and they, you know, anti-abortion, anti-gay marriage, et cetera. They still exist. They're still a registered political party. They ran a few candidates last time, I think. Um, those kind of parties, uh, parties that are... Uh, 
either religiously based, ethnically based, regionally based. Uh, there's all sorts of things like that. And I don't have a big problem with regionally based. We have that kind of to some degree now. But certainly those parties that are extremist and uh, would now say under first past the post they had no chance of winning a single seat. All of a sudden they say, if I only get 4% across the province, we're in. And once we're in, we're going to have the platform. I'll concede that those parties will probably exist. I think they'll play a very, very minor role, if any, in, in our politics, in terms of electoral politics. Again, that the vote will fracture. There'll be people who vote for other parties who happen to be sick or happen to be um, whatever they may be, Chinese, whatever it may be, because they have other interests. I don't think all immigrants identify first and foremost as their nationality. There's a lot of diversity in those communities as well. But I'll come back to a previous point. Those folks already exist in the parties. I mean, everyone remembers the Liberals' quick win scandal, right? Their goal was to try, or Jason Kenney and Stephen Harper's uh, plan to woo immigrant communities to try to win. Uh, that Those politics already exist in our current system, and they're captured within the parties. The difference being is they're, they effectively taint parties that win majorities and can get away with pretty much whatever they want. So those, those things are going to continue. Under PR, that stuff's going to come to the surface. I think it's going to be fragmented out and dealt with that way. And, and I would argue, this is a hypothesis, it would actually play less of a role in our politics uh, if we had it under PR than it currently does under First Past the Post. Thank you, David and Bill. Um, thank you so much. You know, you guys have informed us so greatly. I can't imagine two people better qualified than you two to uh, talk about this issue. You've done us a great service. Thank you very much.